Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Britain goes to war. An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age, Chapter 11 With the eruption of a revolt in Herzegovina in July 1875, the Balkans and the Ottoman Empire seemed to be edging towards a crisis which would make it vulnerable to exterior pressure and attack. The collapse of the Ottomans could lead to a power vacuum and a war for spoils. Within this theoretical war, not even Britain would be able to remain aloof. Thus, it was up to the government, led by Benjamin Disraeli, to ensure that whatever did happen in the Balkans, it did not force Britain into an untenable position. The best way to ensure that British interests were upheld, short of using force, was through diplomacy. This was a fact Disraeli and his cabinet well knew, but Disraeli had to be mindful of his other important colleagues, two of which we have grouped together for convenience sake into a triumvirate with the Prime Minister. But let's have a quick refresher before we tackle the meat of the episode. Within this triumvirate also existed one of the richest men in Britain, and son of a former Conservative Prime Minister, the 15th Earl of Derby. Joining them was the bearded son of another prominent family, Robert Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, known to posterity simply as Salisbury. These three men, while they did not necessarily have a monopoly on opinion within the Conservative Party, certainly came to represent it best, as we'll see. Lord Darby was the more traditional Conservative. Some even suspected he had, gasp, liberal sympathies, and he would always lobby for the more reserved line in policy, something we'll see demonstrated in the near future. Lord Salisbury was more middle-of-the-road in his views and policies. He was probably halfway between agreeing with Darby and Disraeli on most issues, but then both possessed ideals which he found too hard to reconcile with his own. In fairness to Lord Darby, he was the Foreign Secretary, but as Disraeli repeatedly made clear, despite the fact that they were supposed to be firm friends once the cabinet was formed, Foreign policy to him was the most important and fascinating aspect of a government's responsibilities, and he would not be content to simply leave such responsibilities in the hands of one man, even if, you know, it was kind of that man's job. 
This preference for foreign policy almost certainly seeped into Salisbury's own sense of what it meant to be Prime Minister, since in the future it is he who, upon leading the Conservatives to victory again in 1895, insisted on moulding the jobs of Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary together. This was not the first time that Disraeli and Darby had served together, or even the first time that they had held their posts which they now held. From February 1868 to November of that year, Disraeli as Prime Minister and Darby as Foreign Secretary had cooperated to the extent that their friendship seemed only to grow. 1868, as you may remember, was something of a quiet period in foreign policy though, especially in comparison to the 1870s. While it is certainly true to say that their friendship had not yet been tested by the time the government formed in early 1874, I do find it remarkable that neither man seemed to have really grasped just how different each viewed his country's place in the world. Would they not have realised, in their numerous DMCs as they walked through Darby's father's estates in the late 1840s, just how different the other was? It was in many ways a convenient partnership for both men. Darby credited Disraeli with having shown him the political ropes as only Disraeli could when he was a young man, while Disraeli thanked Darby for welcoming him into his home on the regular occasions when Darby's father and Disraeli would talk policy. Disraeli also had, by way of his ill-advised decisions made during his youth, racked up a whole load of debts that haunted him for much of his life. It was Darby who Disraeli had listed as his emergency backer should he ever be nabbed, as he put it, and held to ransom for those debts. It was a relationship, then, that seemed somewhat natural as well as mutually beneficial, but despite its symbiotic roots, the Darby-Disraeli axis could not last when it was put under pressure. And once Disraeli realised just how diametrically opposed to his idea of policy, Darby was. The major test, as we saw near the end of the last episode, came in the Ottoman Empire. A major revolt in Herzegovina seemed to represent the culmination of years of nationalist and rhetorical frustration and there was no guarantee that the revolts would even end in Herzegovina. This was a turbulent time and one with immense ramifications for 1914, since the other principalities to follow Herzegovina's lead would eventually include Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro and Bulgaria, and all would agitate to break away and dramatically change the Ottoman Empire's demographic makeup. To me, this is strikingly similar to the situation that the Balkan Wars created in 1912-1913, wherein one power, Italy, exploited Ottoman weakness and lit a fire under the Balkans, causing a mad scramble among them for spoils. In our case here, the potential was just as combustible. For centuries, the Ottomans had extended their rule into Europe. Now that rule seemed to be waning, just as ideas like pan-Slavism and nationalistic rhetoric captured the moods and hearts of those individuals within them, who seemed to awake from their vassalage with a kind of nationalist epiphany, as they began to realise just how difficult the Ottomans were finding the act of suppressing them. To understand why events occurring in the Ottoman Empire affected individuals back in London, we need to appreciate some of the major themes of the day two of which, in this case, are relevant and both we touched on a bit in the last episode, the Eastern Question and the Great Game. The Eastern Question was the shorthand catch-all term used to refer to the issue of the declining Ottoman Empire and what to do about it. This included questions of partition, whether Britain should acquire a naval base nearby, whether a conference should be called to formally disintegrate it, 
how weak it precisely was, whether Britain should be tasked with propping it up as it had during the Crimean War, and, most importantly perhaps, what Russia's angle was. The Eastern question was rarely mentioned without some kind of allusion to Russia, because it was Russia who was expected to gain most from the Ottoman disintegration. It was Russia who had harboured romantic ambitions to hold Constantinople and command the Dardanelles Straits since the beginning of the 19th century. It was Russia who would gain the most by acquiring these trade routes, since most of her trade from Europe by sea passed through these straits. It was Russia who could most threaten the British hold on the Mediterranean and thereby Egypt and India, if she did expand to Constantinople and thereby possess a permanent foothold in such a geographically important location. It was the status quo which pleased British policymakers the most, because with a comparatively weak power in control of the states, no new power could use all that the straits offered to bolster their power and increase their rule. Were Russia or even a resurgent Greece to suddenly seize the region, the resulting increase in their power would seriously upset the balance of power in the Mediterranean, and could lead to a major conflict as states scrambled to fill the power vacuum. It was thus imperative that the Russians or anyone else did not possess the region unless British policymakers felt that their administration, as well as their people, were ready for the war that would result. On the other hand, when it came to dealing with the great game, Disraeli and his colleagues were more reserved. Well, at least initially. It was only once it became evident that both the Eastern question and the great game so overlapped, that Disraeli began to up the ante. The great game is another handy catch-all term that is used to refer to the Anglo-Russian competition in Asia. Normally it revolves around the regions bordering on nearby India, such as Afghanistan, Persia and the Central Asian Republics that Russia continued to absorb. On occasion it referred to Russian expansion into China, but that aspect of the great game would only become more important after the 1880s. The great game began to heat up in the 1870s because Russian expansion into Asia looked threatening to those in the Indian administration who valued the distance that Russia kept from them. Eventually it was suggested that Persia and Afghanistan should form the natural borders between the two, but in later years both the Russians and British would overcome these deals, with Disraeli's administration doing so when the invasion of Afghanistan took place in 1878. This latter move was connected to the Russo-Turkish war that had been raging since the year before, and it pushed representatives of Britain on the ground in India to act semi-independently of London and advocate their own policy on the grounds that such actions were warranted to ensure the empire's security. This is all ahead of us, and sorry to spoil the future for you, but you should be aware that this theme of acting without strict instructions in a far-flung sphere only to incur additional problems and require bailing out by London would become a common one. It was first encountered in Afghanistan most blatantly, and will certainly come across it again, but it was a common aspect of Britain's policy in South Africa as well. Now we're going to save the South African issues for future episodes, but suffice to say British policy during Disraeli's administration had to cope with a number of problems. The Great Game and the Eastern Question were the two most pressing for London, because they represented imperial competition at a high level, where much was at stake, and upon which the fortunes of the empire rested. These two foreign policy themes were also significant for their ability to divide opinion. As John Charmley in his book Splendid Isolation noted, 
Disraeli and Darby could not agree on how to fundamentally approach the Eastern question. Quote, when revolts broke out in Bosnia-Herzegovina in early 1875, Disraeli cared nothing for Turkish misrule, which was claimed to have provoked them, and much for the chance which the disorder offered Russia to intervene in the affairs of the Ottoman Empire. He did not wish to see Russian power expand, and he did not wish to lend Britain's assistance to any plot organised by the Dreikaiserbund. In these things he differed from Darby, who saw the Eastern question as one of equal concern to the cabinets of Europe, and doubted the prospect of a final solution. For him, it was enough to try to discover temporary expedients to meet the emergency at the time. But even that prospect raised the question of cooperating with the other powers with a direct interest in the fate of the Ottoman Empire, i.e. Russia and Austria-Hungary. And that, since 1873, also involved dealing with the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who had sponsored the Dreikaiserbund as a means of isolating France and making Berlin the pivot around which Austro-Russian relations revolved. End quote. The addition of the Dreikaiserbund or Three Emperors League between Austria-Hungary, Germany and Russia complicated matters, and since it was the brainchild of Bismarck, it meant that any British attempts to get a power on side or help out with the Eastern question would require Bismarck's help. To Disraeli, any attempt to curry favour with Bismarck and his League would be detrimental to British interests, since it would empower Germany and leave Britain in Bismarck's debt. For Darby, as Charmley noted, he saw the unfolding crisis in the Ottoman Empire as one which all powers should cooperate to defuse, since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire would affect them all. One thing both men did have in common was their opinion of Otto von Bismarck. They recognised from an early stage that they could not trust him as far as they could throw him. The difference lay in the fact that while Darby appreciated Bismarck and his Dreikaiserbund were inseparable, and could be used to British advantage, Disraeli wanted to open up a secret, direct line of communication to Bismarck without the Austrian or Russian appendages. As early as December 1875, these differences over how to approach the Eastern crisis were manifesting themselves. In that month, Austria-Hungary's foreign minister, Jules Andrassy, released what came to be known as the Andrassy Note, a document which called for reforms to be implemented within the Ottoman Empire and for the powers of the day to collaborate and pressure the Ottomans to accept them. Darby felt that the note's demands were reasonable, and didn't want to be caught up in accusations of defending the Turks for the sake of it, especially when they had apparently violated the laws of nations with their atrocities. A sovereign who can neither keep the peace at home nor pay his debts, Darby said, must expect to submit to some disagreeable consequences. Darby wasn't naive enough to think that Austria had no ulterior motives, but he ruled out the idea that Andrassy was merely acting to prepare the world for a Habsburg takeover of the Balkans, or to instigate a partition of the Ottoman Empire. Andrassy would never have acted so rashly without the approval of Bismarck, who would have been far too conservative himself to approve of such a great change in the map of Europe, and, besides, Austria would never have gotten away with such land grabs unless it was cooperating with Russia, who also had a vested interest in the Balkan regions. Darby cynically dismissed the notion that the Austrians and Russians, two peoples with competing ambitions, would have been able to cooperate at such a time, 
and such a suspicion does make sense, especially when we consider how bitter the Austro-Russian rivalry became as the years progressed. Disraeli, on the other hand, was completely in the other camp. He believed that Andersi was plotting to undo the Ottoman Empire and deny Britain a place at the table. Where Darby had worried what standing aside from approving of much-needed reforms would do to Britain's moral reputation, Disraeli argued it would set Britain apart as an independent state, and would grant Britain prominence in the eyes of the electorate. What Disraeli didn't suspect was that the Turkish Sultan would eventually urge British involvement in the issue, in time for the new year of 1876, on the grounds that he wanted British involvement in the whole process, since he suspected that London was the only real power the Turks could rely on to be somewhat friendly. Disraeli would give in on this occasion, but he had also been sure to gauge public opinion before he had done so. At this moment, the public did not want a war to prop the Ottomans up, and faced with this reality, Disraeli had to bide his time and wait. The one individual who was most perplexed by the line Disraeli took was Ottoman Bismarck. Bismarck believed that, had Britain refused to cooperate with the note, it would have stuck it to Russia, and, critically for the Iron Chancellor, enabled him to not have to pick between the Austrians or Russians, a prospect which he was growing tired of. If Britain had stood alone against the majority, she would have looked stronger and, and theoretically, united the Dreikaiserbund against her. Of course, this would have been strategically senseless, which was why Disraeli didn't do it in the end, but Bismarck was nonetheless miffed that he hadn't been given a get-out-of-jail-free card just yet. This didn't stop Bismarck from complaining to the British ambassador to Germany and urging him to make London take a firmer line in Europe. On the 2nd of January 1876, Bismarck even went as far as claiming that all of the powers could participate in a partition of the Ottoman Empire, with Britain taking Egypt as its carrot and allowing the rest of it to break apart. But if Bismarck had hoped that Lord Derby, who received the message loud and clear from the British ambassador, would take the bait, then he had the wrong man. Derby is often criticised by historians for not taking a stronger line during the crisis, or by not staking more in his allies and shoring up his own diplomatic position. He also comes under a cutting judgement from generations of historians who believed the stories told by Disraeli and Salisbury i.e. that Darby regularly leaked state secrets to the Russians. The Russian ambassador to Britain, who we met last time, Peter Shuvalov, happened to be a good friend of Darby's wife, if you remember, the Lady Mary, who had been once married to Lord Salisbury's father. Because of this connection, Darby has been the victim of a rampant, historical campaign of character assassination from the likes of Disraeli and Salisbury, and many historians have taken the latter at their word ignoring the furious protestations that Lord Darby made at the time. Darby's colleagues would later label him as a weak-willed and indecisive individual, but this is to be too harsh and biased. It also fails to take into account the atmosphere of conservative foreign policy Darby was operating under. This was a school with a long history, but unfortunately for Darby's record in history, it was a school that was being altered by Disraeli. Let me explain what I mean. Under previous conservative ministers such as Lord Canning or the Earl of Aberdeen, who both ruled over foreign policy under Sir Robert Peel's 1841 administration and thereafter, the Conservative Party had maintained their reputation as statesmen who rarely made major waves on the diplomatic scene. 
This was achieved, as Darby well appreciated, by not overtly intervening in affairs on the continent or making expensive foreign commitments there. At the same time, Darby may have been highlighted as a liberal sympathiser, but he possessed no sympathy for the liberal style of foreign policy making, the so-called Manchester School of Foreign Policy, which had been cultivated by liberalism's great minds, the likes of Richard Cobden and John Bright. These men and the school they represented argued that war was neither possible nor desirable in the industrialised future, and that it had no place within British society or policy. Europe and the world was to become more pacific based on the examples Britain set for her, in free trade, equal diplomacy, and a desire to improve upon affairs at home above all. John Charmley notes that when Darby surveyed the Europe of 1875, he saw a system which, instead of being ripe for Britain to set such examples, was showing more protectionist tendencies than 20 years ago, and that it was simultaneously armed to the teeth. The difference between Darby and Disraeli was that, while Darby noted such facts with a level of resignation, Disraeli noted them with increasing unease and fear. It was Disraeli who forwarded the complaints of the Duke of Cambridge, Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, straight to Lord Derby, when the Duke had claimed to have been alarmed at the state of our armaments. Derby replied amusingly that, I should have been more impressed if I could remember a time when he, the Duke, had not been seriously alarmed. The continent may have been visibly arming, but Darby believed that the actual way in which the powers were set up, with Germany and France watching one another carefully, there was more likely to be opportunities for Britain to build advantageous relationships. The same went for Bismarck. It was no secret that his greatest object was to prevent Austria and Russia from falling out over the Balkan issue. The British ambassador to Germany easily perceived as much in his reports home. Armed with such information, Why should Britain not use this knowledge, rather than her armaments, to advance her own interest in the world? This, once again, was an example of a key difference between Disraeli and Derby. Disraeli felt compelled to urge a campaign of armament building and defence spending, but Derby professed himself unable to consider the continental route of arming more and more every year without any material gain. It wasn't a sustainable policy, even if at the same time he was perfectly willing to accept gradual increases in defence spending, Darby would not accept the ethos which seemed to compel European governments, the French and German at least, to steadily increase their defences as if on a war footing. Britain did not have a direct enemy to turn this theoretical force against. Russia was a world problem rather than a European one and individuals like Darby argued for a case-by-case increase of the British forces in different spheres, rather than an overall increase of British arms in general. Disraeli believed that the public opinion as well as Britain's geopolitical interests had to be appeased, as did Darby. Where they differed was how to manage imperial foreign policy so that both aspects would be preserved. Whereas Disraeli wanted Britain to pursue a more forward foreign policy with respect to the Ottomans, Darby believed that it would be up to the powers that now debated the Andrasi note to actually get things done. And he was right. Queen Victoria also claimed the value in getting the Germans on side. She didn't trust Bismarck's intentions either, but she would have to contend that the matter seemed to be working itself out when a document called the Berlin Memorandum was delivered to Lord Darby's Foreign Office Department in mid-May 1876. 
However, despite the appearance of progress, the actual contents of the memorandum threw yet more problems into the air, because they were virtually identical to those of the Andrassy note the previous December, the only difference being that there was now more on the line. It was essentially the Andrassy note version 2.0, except with added provisions. The Ottomans would have to sign a two-month armistice with the Balkan peoples that they still fought. They would be expected to make compensation, and they must acquiesce to a commission composed of the reps of the great powers, who together would ensure that the Ottomans behaved in line with the memorandum. Should the Turks refuse, the sting in the tail, as Charmley put it, was a provision to coerce the Turks further, by use of force if necessary. This time, Disraeli would not stand for such terms. In December, he had accepted the Andrasi note because it seemed as though he was alone in his method of thinking, but this latest memo pushed too far. In his mind, by not being privy to the construction of the memo, only to then be compelled to accept it along with the rest of Europe, made British opinion and her place in the world out to be something of a joke. How could London simply agree to such weighted terms when she had had no say in making them? This was not how world powers did business. It should have been Britain that was sending the note to the capitals of Europe, not the other way round. To Disraeli then, even the fact that his cabinet were debating the issues demonstrated how far British power had fallen in the estimation of her European rivals. She needed to take a stand now for the sake of her honour and prestige, lest she would be basically equal in status to some second-rate country like Belgium or Spain, who had also been consulted and pressured into giving their approval. Now, there was no actual threat of violence should Britain not agree to the terms, but it was the damage it would do to her reputation as a moral power worthy of consultation that might be damaged instead. Especially if she were the only power that did not adhere to the terms, it would look as though Britain was blocking much-needed reforms in the Ottoman Empire without even having a plan B. This would ensure that the conflict continued unabated, and present London as more interested in its own geopolitical position than in the welfare of suffering minorities. The moral tone of that last point would be easy pickings for the opposition to latch onto. It would be a convenient position to start a campaign of criticism against conservative foreign policy, should Disraeli manage to persuade his cabinet to back away from signing the memo. In the last week of May 1876, Disraeli did manage to persuade all within his cabinet, bar Darby who still wanted to delay for time, that the memo should be rejected with an understanding, but still firm tone for the rest of the powers to hear. Disraeli's arguments that we are being drawn step by step into participating in a scheme which must end very soon in the disintegration of Turkey. Certainly struck a chord with his colleagues. Disraeli argued above all that the Ottomans might simply elect to refuse to accept the terms of the memo, since that was exactly what the Sultan had eventually done to the Andrasi note. Going along with the other European powers in December had made Britain out to be like all the others in the concert of Europe. What Disraeli proposed was to distance his country from the memo now, so that she would be taken more seriously in Europe and that her opinion would matter more. It was a leap in the dark, Disraeli argued, to simply repeat the action Britain had taken last December. And there was more going on in the background anyway. The memo's contents may have been relatively straightforward, but the circumstances and context in which they had been devised were anything but... 
Disraeli knew only too well that behind the front of Russian concern for Eastern Christians and a desire for reform was a wish to partition the Ottoman Empire and extend their own influence over the Balkan peoples. The ideology of pan-Slavism, in Disraeli's mind, was simply a form of pan-Russianism designed by the Tsar's government to perfectly wrap up the region in a convenient ribbon. Whether Disraeli believed in the Tsar's pledges to secure the welfare of Eastern Orthodox Ottoman subjects is one thing, but Disraeli and others were certainly mindful of what had happened the last time Britain had joined forces with Russia against the Ottomans. In 1827, during the Greek War of Independence, it had resulted in the destruction of the Turkish fleet and a rapid expansion of Russian power, as well as a general decline in Ottoman power. For someone like Disraeli, who saw the East as a region in which great empires rested sensitively against one another, the slightest upset or alteration to the balance of power in the region would dramatically upset British plans for the world. A Russia which was able to defeat the Ottomans, disintegrate its empire, expand into Constantinople and wrap up the Balkans in the ribbon of pan-Slavism, would hold sway over the greatest strategic position in the world, and it was Disraeli's inherent belief that Britain was the force standing between this remaining a Russian dream or becoming the world's reality. He would of course make use of the assistance of other powers, but at the end of the day Disraeli's foreign policy was motivated by the idea that Russia had to be stopped and that Britain could rely on British power alone to stop her. Thus Disraeli felt content to back away from the Berlin Memo whatever the consequences, since he had viewed the entire crisis with suspicion ever since talk of reforms that might limit Ottoman power had been bandied about. The problem for the government's PR campaign was that Disraeli did not pose any alternative, and when the memo collapsed on the crisis across the Ottoman Empire's Balkan domains got loudly worse, Disraeli's policies were a convenient target upon which not just European but other British statesmen could attach blame. It did not matter that the Turks had rejected the concept of foreign pressure before. This time, the dastardly British had caused the issue to collapse before it had even got to the table, and so those statesmen across Europe who had aimed at defusing the whole crisis felt well within their rights to curse the name of Benjamin Disraeli, who had needlessly prolonged the entire crisis out of desire for notoriety and a misplaced inferiority complex. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It was hard to disagree with these statesmen in their fit of anger, though you can see where Disraeli was coming from at the same time. To some, statesmen represented the inherent flaw of Disraeli's foreign policy, that by seeking to beef up British prospects he would inflame foreign opinion and drag Britain into conflicts with other powers. Despite the fact that Lord Derby would note with a measure of surprise that the mood of the public seemed to be with Disraeli's decision, the honeymoon could not last. Disraeli was soon to come face to face with even greater public opinion challenges, just as word was filtering in about a series of horrendous atrocities in Bulgaria. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 